Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is our text for tonight. Philippians 2, 12 to 18 is where we're going to dive in. Actually, we've already dove in, so we're kind of continuing on in this section of Scripture. Last time, uh, we began discussing the vast array of choices in our world and that oftentimes those choices don't necessarily bring about the best for us. They don't necessarily bring about contentment because when we see all these things, then we can become covetous and we can desire those things which really are not for our good. I, you know, there are times that I suppose each of us have desired to win the lottery or have a million or a billion dollars, and yet when we see the horrors that affect the people that have had that success, if we could call it so, it is within a few years that they find themselves in horrific ruin oftentimes, and the struggles which they face through the acquisition of that wealth are often, they will say, not at all worth what they have received. So as we understand that, we're brought to realize that amidst these choices are not necessarily the best things for us and that what we must continually seek is an understanding of Christ and a contentment with where we are. And that comes through our obedient response. And that's what we've titled our message, The Obedience Response. This is part two of that message, if you will, the obedience response, part two. And as we consider this title, let's look at our text and understand how it reveals that response for which we're to be obedient. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering. Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The obedience response. As we consider this text, and last week as we looked at our first point of this text, which we titled Divine Working, Divine working was that first point we looked at last week in verses 12 to 13. 
the divine working we saw was the connection back to verses 1 to 11. That is back to Christ, back to a focus on the church, back to the unity that exists in the church, and back to a focus on his humility, on the two natures of Christ, the kenosis, fully God and fully man, and how he submitted in all things to his Father, and how he endured the most horrific treatment at the hands of wicked and godless men. Also that he might bring us to the Father, purified and holy because of his work. And that because of Christ's work, all will submit to him. So in this idea then, the context of the divine working came forward through the ultimate servant of Jesus Christ the one who is the foundation of the church and the one from whom all encouragement is derived and the one to whom all honor is due. And this is our launch point, but it is the focus that we must never lose sight of. That is the reality of our lives. That is the power and the strength of our lives. It is Christ who is the foundation of this church. Amen? It is Christ who is the foundation of our lives and our faith. And it is Christ alone whom we must honor. It's why we're here. If the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession says, is to glorify God, our whole purpose of existence is to glorify Christ. And that means wherever we are, in whatever station, whatever place God has put us, we are to glorify Christ. And what a delight it is as we pursue that. Well, these ideas of making this picture of his servanthood all the more overwhelming. And because of this, in verses 12 to 13, Paul called the Philippians to obey. This is something they had done in the past in his presence, but now needed to continue in his absence and do so much more. So they had to greatly excel. Here we had this church that was arguably the best church in the New Testament. And now Paul tells them, you know, you're doing great. You're the hallmark. You're at the top of the ladder. You're number one in my book of all the churches. Now excel still more. You know, it's like, all right, you've done great. Now get out there and do more. You know, it's a wonderful picture for us. It is every college football coach's motivational speech at halftime. You know, he comes into the locker room, however they've done. He says, all right, gentlemen, you've done well. We've got some things to work on, but now let's really pour it on. And that is what Paul is telling us. There is this horrific emphasis on moving forward to do it emphatically and increasing. And what he asked was that they would work out their salvation. Now, we discussed that this wasn't a works-based salvation, but it was rather pursuing sanctification. That is pursuing a, a holy walk with God. This was the idea of divine working that came forward in our text. You can go back and hear that message if you want to understand more of those nuances about that not being a works-based salvation and about that salvation that they were to pursue, that sanctification truly. He explained that this was obedience. This was true obedience because it was God's work for God's pleasure. And that was the submission to the Spirit's leading in our lives. And, 
and what meant to copy the earlier picture of Jesus. We have a forerunner. We have one who's shown us the way perfectly. And he's asked us to come and follow him. And that's what we must do. It's what the great apostle told us himself. Follow me as I follow Christ. So this is our picture. And this idea of, of divine working came forward in this call to obedience, which was all as a result of God's work in them. Thus again, divine working. From that divine working, it takes us to our second point, holy living. Holy living is our second point, which begins in verse 14. First divine working, now holy living. Look at verse 14 with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This verse requires a little explanation, right? We all pretty much get this. It's not a super deep theological point, although, believe it or not, as we'll see, it has tremendous depth. But we immediately get the application. Why? Why do we understand how, that we're to do all things without grumbling and complaining? Because we grumble and complain, don't we? Yeah, we do. We do. I'm a whiner. Right? You know, ask my wife. She won't tell you because she won't tell on me. But it's the truth. Right? I, when I am sick, Karen will tell you she would be so much more grateful if I had a broken arm. Because it would be so much easier to care for me. Praise the Lord, she has not had to endure that, and I never should have said that because now it's going to happen. No, I know that. We're not knocking on wood, even though there's some great here. But it's interesting, this word grumble there, it is uh, a word that we call an onomatopoetic word. I know you all want to write that down and you want to memorize that. Onomatopoetic word. Well, what does it mean? It's important because it gives us great understanding. It's a word that's meaning is inherent in the word. Like meow. Right? We understand what that means. We understand what cuckoo means. Right? We know what the word is, but we know from the sound what it is. It's a bird, right? We know what boom is. We know what honk is, right? These are words that tell us in the word what they mean. This is the word grumble. In the Greek, it is the word gagusmas. Gagusmas, 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 gagusmas. It's grumbling, it's murmuring. That's what's going on. Some translations use this word, murmuring. That's what it is. It, it is this horrific act. Grumbling was a common expression of the children of Israel, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they blew it constantly. God was a, us too. Amen to that. Amen to that. Us too. They were constantly doing it. 1 Peter 4.9 uses this same word. It says, be hospitable to one another without complaint, without gagusmas. We're going to talk about hospitality, by the way, on Sunday in Hebrews 13. But it's not hospitality if you bring them into your home 
And then when you get them to bed at night, you go into the bedroom and you talk to your husband and you're like, they're just such miserable house guests. Don't take their shoes off. They muddied everything up. They don't take care of their dishes. They don't help around. Oops. Kagusmas. 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 Grumbling, murmuring. The seriousness of this offense is indicated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and chapter 10. Listen to this. This will give you a little bit of a start when we consider our grumbling attitude. 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul says, Nor grumble as some of them did, referencing the children of Israel, and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's their grumbling for which God destroyed them. <laughs> I love that section of the Old Testament, right? We want to be back in Egypt. We want to have the leeks and the garlic and we want our meat. God says, I'll give you meat till it runs out of your nose. It's like, oops. Maybe got a little carried away because now we have irritated our God in heaven. One dictionary definition of grumbling is an expression of speculation and skepticism about someone. An expression of speculation and skepticism about someone. Goes on to say murmuring, whispering, or secret talk. In John chapter 17 and verse 12, we see that very reference brought forward. John 17 and verse 12 reads, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Of course, this is the Lord's high priestly prayer. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And that is a great verse, but it is not the cross-reference I was supposed to have there. Um, so we'll go by, by that. But we understand this idea of, of speculation and of whispering, of skepticism, because that brings something to our mind, doesn't it? What does that sound like in addition to grumbling? Sounds a little like gossip, doesn't it? I think it does. An expression of speculation and skepticism about someone. Gossip. You know, we need to understand gossip. We need to continue to remind ourselves about what gossip is. Because sometimes we think in our holier-than-thou attitude that we're really helping when we're talking to someone else about a circumstance that's going on. Let me give you a definition of gossip that I've given you before and I will give you again at some point because I think it is so important. It is only not gossip when you are either directly associated with the problem or directly associated with the solution. That means if when you are talking to someone about this issue that you know as you perhaps are speculating or expressing skepticism about someone, if you are specifically expecting that the end of that conversation is going to result in that individual or you and that individual going to address that which you're speaking about. If you're just telling him because you're fed up, it's grumbling and complaining and gossip and sin. 
If you're directly part of the problem, if it's against you, then that's another story as well. But if it's not, it's gossip. And we love, you know, us men, we love to point fingers at our wives or at women in general and say, oh, those ladies, they are the gossips. Never forget, gentlemen, every time you point your finger, there are three pointing back at you. And we are every bit as capable and effective at gossip, if not more so than the ladies. So remember what it is, and don't be a grumbler and a complainer. We aren't to dispute or argue either. The end of the verse says, now that is an intellectual versus a physical argument. It is, it is a word that references logic or the mind, that we are disputing with someone. And then verse 15 gives us the result. And here's where this really plain Jane, totally get it, got this verse, blows out of the chute. Verse 15. So that, so here is the result, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Will you stop right there for a minute? Here's the result of not grumbling or complaining, of not gossiping that will be blameless and innocent. And if we are doing those things, then by definition, we are not blameless and innocent. Dr. MacArthur notes that that phrase, prove yourselves, indicates that there's a process. A process through which holy living occurs. Okay, it's okay that we're not all there. It's okay that we fall short. The point is to realize when we do to repent and turn and to seek to do differently. But there is a process. And as different things affect us in different ways, we will respond sometimes in inappropriate ways. Sometimes grumbling, sometimes complaining, sometimes gossiping, and they're in sin. But each of us are at different stages. But beloved, the point is that we're all growing in this. First in this process of growth is to be blameless and innocent. That is, not to have to be blamed or accused of unholy living or of wickedness. It is to be without guilt in this area. Our lives are to be blameless. The the pictures of this throughout the scripture are incredible. This is what we see in Ephesians 5, that gorgeous text where men are exhorted to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And he goes on to say, as he talks about Christ's love for the church, that he would present her spotless and blameless as he washed her with the water of the word. What Christ did for the church, men are to do for their wives. And the picture is that men, as we minister to our wives, as we make certain that the water of the word is washing over them, that they are being cleansed, that they're not being affected by such things as grumbling and complaining, needless to say, we can't be either, that then at that time, they will be presented to Christ as a result of our efforts. And that is our command It says that you will be not only blameless and innocent, but you'll be children of God. It describes who we really are. We can't ever forget that. You know, it's easy for us as we go through our lives to forget who we truly are. You know, when we're little kids, and it's been a while since we've been little kids, any of us, but we cling to the identity of our parents. 
Our moms and our dads are everything. And we see this in little children. You know, they're, they're right there. Now, they may be rebellious and you may be little, you know, parents are trying to rein them in. But the reality is they are looking at everything the parents do. They are reflecting it. They are little mirrors. They are little sponges. That's who we are to be with our Holy Father. And yet as children grow, they forget about their parents. They lose sight of that. They're, they're doing their own thing. They're living their own lives. And we can be the same way. And we must remember at all times that our primary designation is children of God. And as children of God, we are to be above reproach. Describing the reality of who we are is the same admonition Jesus gives in Matthew 5.45 near the end of the first discourse of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. All of our lives are striving, are pursuing, are seeking, are desiring obedience so that we can be sons of our Father in heaven. Is that not the goal? Is that not why we persevere? Is that not the joy amongst the difficulty of the loss of life of those we know that are Christ's children? What joy we have to know that they are formally now in the presence of their Father. And that's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. And we are to be above reproach as we pursue that. This term describes something free from visible defect. It, it doesn't mean perfect. Okay, there is no sinless perfection those that think that exists are, are totally theologically askew. We are sinners each and every day, and we always will be, but we're growing. We're growing in the appearance of us, even though in reality we are not perfect and above reproach. There is that growth and that appearance. And when we see in ourselves that it doesn't exist, we change it. We change it. We seek to be righteous and holy. Verse 15 next shows the contrast of holy living. It says where we live, the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It was that way 2,000 years ago. It's been that way all the way till now. Is it more so now? I think so. I think we are growing in the depravity and we are growing closer to the depravity that exists at the time of Noah where we will see God say, enough. But it was that way then. So they were dealing with the same issues that we are dealing with. Crooked is the Greek word where we get our English word scoliosis. That curvature of the back. It, it means something that is, that is not straight, that can't be straightened. And the word perverted comes from the illustration of pottery. I don't know, I... I when I was in college my first year, I was an absolute failure in every way. Some of you picked up on that from my testimony. I went through the first semester with that, that raging .44 grade point average and got into the second semester said, I've got to make some marks here somewhere. I took pottery. said, I can make some points in pottery. This is what you get when you go to a liberal arts uh, non-Christian school. You can take pottery for credit. So I'm there, you know, and you got your wheel, and they're telling you all about it, and it never fails. You get that thing going, you get it spinning, pretty soon it just starts going sideways, and you just got a blob of nothing. That's exactly what this word perverse means. It's, a, it's from pottery, and it's a blob that is useless for nothing. It's just a pile of clay that can't be fit into anything until it is totally reworked. 
And this is the world in which we live. And again, it's always been this way. But when we exhibit the prior elements of holy living, when we are not grumbling, complaining, because that's where all of this is shedding down from. This all starts at not grumbling or disputing. Then these things start to fall out, even amidst this world we live, and we appear as lights in the world. This is the most beautiful Greek phrase. We don't see it as clearly in our English translation, but literally the Greek says we are made to shine as stars in the universe. Lights in the world is a great picture, but we are made to shine as stars in the universe. How glorious is it to see the stars and to understand the beauty that God holds them all in the sky, that he has named everyone, and that we then shine like these in the universe when we are obedient to this. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 16 begins by showing us how this then occurs. Holding fast the word of life. Holding fast clinging to inseparably. This is the picture of one hanging off the edge of a cliff by a rope. And you have slid down and you've slid down and your hands are tired and you realize that if you go that next six inches off the edge of that rope, you will plunge to certain death and demise. You are clinging to that thing. Your arms are hurting, but it doesn't matter. You are giving it everything you got to hold on. That's the picture and that's the conveyance of this verb. And what are we to hold on to? The word of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the word of life. That Jesus Christ has come, lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place, buried and was raised again on the third day and we too like him will be raised and has ascended to the right hand of the father where we one day will ascend as well that's what we hold on to and how do we get there just what we've been talking about back in our previous point back in the idea of divine working We do it by obedience. We do it by holding fast the gospel. By extension, Jesus and the scripture. You know, when Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he painted the picture for the congregation of their lives as hanging over the leaping fires of hell by a spider web. And that were those fires to continue to move up, that you would instantly be singed and plunged into hell. That is the picture that is being painted for us in how we are to cling to the word of life. To realize that we must hold so fast as to move above those fires of hell that continue to leap at our feet to consume us. The enemy which we face, which is real. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the ruler of the dark age. We wrestle against Satan. And he is constantly roaming about, seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion. It is a battle. And we must cling 
fast to the word of life. And the purpose follows in the rest of verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The day of Christ is that wonderful reference to the day when we will stand before Jesus as our judge. That is at the Bema seat as it's referenced in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In that text, and we understand that the judgment that we'll receive from God as believers is not punitive. It is not punishment. Judgment is not always punishment. Judgment can also be reward. And for the believer, that's what it is. Beloved, our sins have been paid for once and for all. Paid in full is the overall theme of the book of Romans. The slate's cleared. You're seen right now in the righteous white garden, right, white robes of Christ. And he has fully taken your sin. So it is that reward which the believer will face. Well, Paul's reference here to the personal nature of judgment at the, end of 16, at the end of verse 16, it becomes a function of his ministry. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. That his efforts had value. That when he gets to the bema seat of Christ, he will see the reward for all that he has done. That's our delight. That is, that is the wonderful joy that sits before us. Do you realize how many that you have no idea because you have planted a seed or you have watered a seed and when you get to heaven, they will say, it was because of you. It was because of the word, the kind word. It was because of the, the glass of water. It was because of the expression of love that you showed to me wonderful for us to understand this and that it is not running in vain not running to no effect so as it was for paul it is for us there's to be a fruitfulness to our spiritual lives an end for this purpose of holy living paul repeatedly addresses this in the scriptures we see it in in first thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 Paul writes there, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. We are to recognize these so that they do not run in vain, so that their ministry is of merit. We see the same thing at the end of the book of Hebrews in verse 17 of chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. There is an end, there is a purpose, there is a goal, there is a reward that lies in all of this, and it's so that we realize that we do not run in vain. And Paul is excited about that which they will do, that they would not run in vain. And again, all of this pours out of not grumbling and complaining. What a simple verse and what a blowout context it has. Well, we have divine working and holy living in our third point. 
is faithful rejoicing in verses 17 to 18. Faithful rejoicing. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul realizes that his current status, he's not talking about an eschatological situation, an end time situation. He says, I am being poured out right now in prison, in Rome, as he writes this letter. He is being poured out. And he is pouring himself out. When it says here that he is poured out as a drink offering, a drink offering was the offering of wine normally that would be poured onto or adjacent to the burning sacrifice. And as that sacrifice was being consumed in flame and that wine was poured on top, it would immediately evaporate and there would be a puff of smoke. And it would be a reminder that the offering and the sacrifice is being taken up before the Lord. This is the whole idea of the picture of incense, that it would rise before the Lord. And remember all the references in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, that it would be a sweet aroma to God. So this is what's being painted for us, that Paul's life is this drink offering that's being poured out on their sacrifice, on the work that they're doing, and on their service of their faith. And he rejoices in this. He's excited about this as they complete this, as they move forward and move forward without grumbling or complaining and are obedient to understand God's work and to follow in line with it. And he says in 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. There's a mutual joy that goes on. There's a joys that we've expressed tonight as we've shared prayer requests, as we've talked about Mark and what may happen with him. We rejoice that we may have a chance to minister to him. We rejoice with Sonny that the Lord will give her another opportunity if it be his kind, good pleasure to interact with him. And there is this blessing that comes with all of this and we share that in common. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. This great joy. This is the obedient response. And what comes from it? It's not a, woe is me, gagoosmos, gagoosmos, gagoosmos. No, it is the joy of Christ. It is the blessing of seeing his work all around us. In answered prayers, in those that are struggling, and as we come before the throne of God, just delighting to lift these up god is pleased to receive this and this is the faithful rejoicing and we understand through that more clearly our savior and that's what paul calls us to and he calls us to reflect on the fact that there is a choice to be made but the only real choice is an obedient response because the other choice is an ungodly it is a choice of blame it is a choice of wickedness and that must not be beloved the choice that we take it is a choice of those that are perverted and fit in amongst the world in which we live we must always rise above that we must always shine be made to shine like stars in the universe a delight to see the way the lord is making you shine in the universe of this world that he's placed you in. And I trust that he'll continue to encourage us through this amazing letter that we can, 
as he has called the church to in our first point to excel still more or that indeed we would push on much more now than in the past.